If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Woolerskin booking the guest. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is Hamilton Today. I'm Scott Thompson. All right. Uh, Mother's Day weekend. Yeah. Uh, and many are calling it a, um, you know, a Hallmark holiday, but I think Mother's Day was around lot, probably longer than Hallmark. Although maybe not. Cause you see some of those Christmas shows. <laughs> they look pretty old. Uh, but the modern version of what we have, uh, first celebrated in 1907 in North America. And that, you know, it sort of started in the U.S. first and then came up to Canada. But again, any dates have found have been pretty close to this. Uh, but started in around the turn of the century, last century, 1907, when Anna Jarvis held the first Mother Day service of worship at a church in West Virginia, the Andrews Methodist Church, and now holds actually the International Mother's Day Shrine. There you go. Uh, this campaign to make Mother's Day a recognized holiday, and think about this, uh, Mother's Day a holiday in uh, at the beginning of the last century when women weren't voting, um, many not educated, and to have a day named after mothers was quite the feat to have happened. And actually, she began working on it in, in as early as uh, 1905. That was the year her mother uh, passed away. Ann Jarvis had been a peace activist. This was the mother who cared for wounded soldiers on uh, both sides of the American Civil War and created Mother's Day work clubs to address public health issues. It was more about activism back then than anything. Uh, she and other peace activists uh, began urging for the creation uh, for a Mother's Day for Peace. And again, this was all the time uh, when war was the way, uh, where mothers would ask that their husbands and sons were no longer killed in world wars, uh, 40 years before it actually became an official holiday. Um, mothers of various nationalities banding together to promote an amicable settlement in of uh, international questions and international conflict, and generally trying to establish peace. And Anna Jarvis wanted to honor this and set aside a day to honor all mothers because she believed a mother is the person who has done the more for you than anyone in the world. Think about that. Mother is the person who has done more for you than anyone in the world. And I think giving birth pretty much takes that out of the hands of everyone else. Because until you do that, that gets you right to the front of the line. Uh, in 1908, this is kind of funny, the U.S. Congress rejected a proposal to make Mother's Day an official holiday, joking that they would then have to proclaim a mother-in-law's day. Yee. However, owing the efforts of uh, Anna Jarvis by 1911, uh, all of the United States and by this time Canada uh, was was, re- was recognizing and observing Mother's Day as a holiday uh, and, and certainly starting as a local holiday and then moving uh, beyond that. Uh, so there you have it. Um, by the early 20s, however, though, Hallmark cards and other companies had started selling Mother's Day's cards. Jarvis believed that the companies had misinterpreted and exploited the idea of Mother's Day, and that the emphasis of the holiday was on sediment, not profit. As a result, she organized boycotts. <laughs> she organized boycotts of Mother's Day, the day that she actually created. 
and threatened to issue lawsuits against any company that was involved in commercializing this. Uh, Jarvis argued that people should appreciate and honor their mothers through handwritten letters expressing their love and gratitude instead of buying gifts and pre-made cards, you know, with the one size first that fits all. Roses are red. Violets are blue. I love you, mother. Uh, you know how it goes. Uh, you were expecting a rhyme. I'm sorry. Uh, Jarvis protested at candy makers and at a candy makers convention in Philadelphia in 1923, went to the convention and said, this is all wrong. And at a meeting of the American war mother, uh, war mothers by 1925, she had, uh, certainly solidified her, uh, her disdain for what Mother's Day had become. By this time, carnations had become associated with Mother's Day and the selling of carnations by American war mothers to raise money. That angered her even more. And uh, even at one time, um, Jarvis was arrested for disturbing the peace. So created the idea, came up with it, and then is it sort of spun in another direction, got pretty cranky about the whole thing. And, and the, the initial vision that she created and that she wanted to start, uh, sort of became, uh, commercialized. And there you have it. And I was reading somewhere that Mother's Day is one of, if not the busiest day, uh, for restaurants throughout the world as, uh, people try to give mom the day off. And, uh, and, and give her a bit of a, a bit of a break and, and take her out and let somebody else. Uh, do all the work. So there you have it. A little history of Mother's Day. Why we are where we are. So maybe perhaps instead of the Hallmark card. And, you know, I, uh, honestly, I used to do this all the time and I was accused of being cheap. <laughs> I, I, just write a note. Write a note. Fold it up. Put it in. An, I didn't, didn't put it in an envelope. Just dear mom. There you go. And uh, at the end of the day, look at that. I think that's uh, the real meaning of Mother's Day. Great weekend this weekend. My goodness, what an absolutely beautiful day it is out today. And next weekend is a long weekend, although I'm not sure about uh, that one yet, but it's still a week away. Um, but certainly with weather the way it is today, it makes you think about what you may do and your summer plans. Uh, certainly during the global pandemic, everybody wanted to get out and about, whether it was at a cottage, a tent, a trailer, uh, what have you. We remember people trying to book campsites and such. Uh, and uh, the demand was extremely high. Well, we all know if you've grown up in this area, Bingham's in the area uh, up in Kitchener, Waterloo, uh, and the, the Grand Park that they have up there and, and various facilities and, and experiences over the years, well, they're into glamping. What do you mean you don't know what glamping is? It's, for, it's camping for people who really don't like camping. And now even offering luxury containers. Think about that. I've seen them. They're unbelievable. Mark Bingaman is with us, president of Bingaman's Grand Experiences in Kitchener-Waterloo. And with us now, Mark, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hey, good afternoon. Great to be with you. Hey, how long have you guys been in business? How long has Bingaman's been around? Uh, believe it or not, over 85 years. <laughs> That's incredible. So how has it evolved over the years? Oh, my gosh. We, we, we don't have enough time, but from, uh, from being a hobby farm to uh, a swimming hole uh, pond to... Uh, snack bars and then uh, uh, roller skating and then into conventions uh, center and and water park and camping expansion it just it just uh, we keep on growing and uh, and modernizing as as uh, everybody's uh, you know as the general public's taste and uh, desires change for for entertainment we should get the logistics out right at the beginning and then at the very end tell everybody where you are yeah, absolutely. We're 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 in the middle of the Waterloo region, uh, right on the edge of Kitchener, uh, uh, just off of Number Seven towards Guelph. 
And tell us about glamping. First of all, define glamping for us to some that may not know. Well, you know, glamping can mean a whole bunch of different things, but uh, to the to the, from a rudimentary standpoint, glamping is upscale camping. Uh, glamping is something for for those that aren't sure they want they they want to rough it completely and miss the comfort creatures creatures of of home. You know, this you know, glamping is where it's at. And uh, you know, we've actually uh, we have we have multiple uh, uh, container cabins that are they're a little bit more basic. And then last year we started. Uh, with the uh, the ultra luxury containers, <laughs> which uh, quite honestly, it's it's just it's just like being in a hotel suite. Yeah, they are pretty uh, pretty nice. I've taken a peek at them through the the website and pictures and such. So talk about the camping experience because you offer all of it, right? But then this is just one aspect of it. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. Whether whether somebody's looking for the tent camping experience, and and it's and it's unique because our our facility is within a valley area, you know, right along the Heritage Grand River. So uh, it, it's just like being up north, and and you know, yet you still have you can be close to, you know, stores. You can be close to downtown. You can be close to restaurants and bars and all those other items, and that's on top of what we have on site with the water park and our bowling and Boston pizza, and all those other activities. But it's, uh, you know, it's there's something to be said when you're, you know, you can you can sit there, still be connected with Wi-Fi, utilize the internet, TV. Have a have a great co- an espresso coffee in the morning that you can make in your containers. Sit out on your deck, see the uh, see the mist rise from the Grand River in the morning, and at night you can just go outside and uh, and and uh, start up a fire and, and 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 start up your s'mores. And as you mentioned, man, this is all right on the outskirts of KW, so you're close to all the amenities if you don't want to get too far out, as they say. So uh, you don't have a tent, you don't have a camper. What are the options at Bingham's? Yeah, absolutely. We 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 have several to choose from. We have our traditional log cabins for those that are looking for those more rustic experiences, and then we have our our standard containers, which are uh, sleep five and and still have air conditioning and a, and a little mini refrigerator in there and 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 are in inside of the uh, the forested area. And then the ultimate is the uh, the luxury containers, which which is you know quite honestly, it's it's uh, they sleep too, but I tell you, it's a it's a comfortable stay. And I didn't realize they had AC. Absolutely, it gets hot <laughs> in the summertime. Yeah, listen, this is you know we have to you know once again you know you get the families that maybe you know well one spouse isn't too yep. keen on camping, the other spouse is. We want to we want to make sure everybody has the best camping experience that they're expecting. That's hilarious. All right, you guys are in the tent. I'm in the container. I'm in the luxury container. Uh, I'm having a shower to heck with you. Uh, that's hilarious. How many, how big is this facility? How many can you accommodate at once when you're, if you have a full house and you're, all your sites and everything's booked? Oh my gosh. Well, our site's about 130 acres. So when we're, you know, going with a water park going and, uh, and all camping, you know, camping alone, there could be anywhere up to, up to, Twelve for twelve to sixteen hundred people, depending on how many per site. And what about reservations this summer? We remember uh, that it was kind of difficult after the uh, post pandemic and such. Uh, people were were anxious to get out and about. What's the best way to go about booking all of this? You bet. You know what? The best thing is one. First of all, you know, go to binghamins.com, click on camping, and, and while you're there, you can see everything else that we have to offer. But click on camping, and you can book right online. It's real easy. You can you can you know pick, pay, click. Um, and there's no question, you know, throughout the pandemic, you know, all, you know, camping across Ontario just, just, just skyrocketed. And it, it yeah. was always, it was always gaining in popularity, but it just, 
gave it that much more. So booking in advance is certainly certainly um, uh, highly recommended. And uh, and you know what, we we really urge people say, you know, especially during the summer, you know, look at doing a, a midweek getaway. You know, because weekends yeah. are highly highly popular, but midweek getaways they're, they're certainly a little cheaper, more options, and uh, and 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 less fuss. Are you surprised about how popular glamping has become and how people, uh, how the container part of it is picked up? You know, we are a little surprised, but, but, but somewhat not, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of groups, you know, you know, you know, yeah. couples or even, you know, just a, just a bunch of friends getting together and they want a different experience. And, and that's really, I think, you know, the pandemic has shown us everybody wants to reconnect. Everybody wants to get back to that human interaction with one another and and they want you. They're looking for unique experiences. And yeah, many people are traveling and flying, and we all know that just the cost of doing that is just skyrocketing astronomically. So you know, glamping is certainly you know you know close to home is something that's that's brand new, and it's 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 something that's 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 very affordable yet a unique experience that they can create some memories. And really, that's what we do with all of our products. Is we 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 we've been doing that for 85 years creating creating mm-hmm. generational memories for 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 time to come mark bigaman with us president of bigaman's grand experiences in kitchener waterloo now uh luxury containers part of the glamping experience right on the doorstep of civilization look at that mark congratulations great idea good luck this year See you this summer, and hey, listen, and we've got a we've got a glamping uh, a container for you. So come on on. <laughs> All right, take care, Mark. Uh, so hungry, Hamilton's that's S E W, uh, Hamilton's annual restaurant and food truck rally returning to Ottawa Street. There's your history. Uh, this Saturday from 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Chelsea Braley is with us, event coordinator, Ottawa Street B I A, and here now, Chelsea. Thanks for the time. Hope you're doing well. Yes, I'm doing great. Thank you. So talk about, first of all, 10 years for this. It's hard to believe yeah. it has been 10 years. And if I remember correctly, this was started just as really a, a food truck festival, was it not? Yeah, it, it was much simpler at the beginning. It was, um, we were trying to encourage more restaurants to come down to Ottawa Street permanently. So we brought some food trucks in, get to know the area, and then it's just really exploded from there. So do you think the So Hungry event and the Food Truck Festival has helped you bring uh, restaurateurs into the neighborhood and discover this area? Oh, yeah, 100%. How come? Oh, sorry. I was going to say one of the first food trucks we actually had was Gorilla Cheese, who then later opened a spot on Ottawa Street. And now we have tons of restaurants. And explain the SEW to people who may be new to the city. Yes. Um, so Ottawa Street is a fabric district and a textile district. It has a long history of fabric and textiles. Um, although it's not as big as it might have been years ago, we still have many fabric stores on Ottawa Street. Did you think uh, when this was started 10 years ago, it would be an annual event like this? No, I don't think that's how it started at all. Um, but we're glad it is. <laughs> and how has it evolved beyond food trucks? I mean, so we do have the food trucks, but we also have a stage with live music now. Um, We have activities for all ages to come out and enjoy. Um, We have a market set up as well if people want to shop. And then we've also just got our restaurants and our regular businesses that are here all year round. We often hear uh, sometimes there's, um, you know, restaurateurs can be a little uh, cranky when it comes to food trucks. But obviously, this is the whole backbone of 
this festival and how it has helped spawn restaurants on on Ottawa Street. Do the restaurants and the food trucks get along? Yeah, I would say they do. Um, In fact, we encourage our restaurants as well to set up outside and do their own displays and their own food as well. So we encourage everyone to try everything while they're here. And as far as the food trucks, uh, I describe this to people because, again, many may not realize what the new food truck is all about. There's various uh, various uh, uh, types of food and such to sample from. Yes. I mean, it's probably almost easier for me to list what we don't have. But <laughs> there is like over 30 trucks this year. We've got Indian food, Jamaican, Mexican, Greek, poutine, of course, dessert. So it's a great way to come out and try foods you might not normally try or, or just go back to your classic favorites. And how did you fare during the pandemic with all this? Yes, the pandemic was tricky. I know we did shut down for a few So Hungry Zen. And then our first one after pandemic was last year. Um, it was a smaller event last year. We had less food trucks, way less activities, um, whereas this year it's much bigger. Plus, it's our 10-year anniversary, so we had to do something extra special this year. And what about attendance last year? Yes, I would still say we had a huge attendance last year. Um, we weren't really sure what to expect, right, coming out from COVID. So we had probably close to 30,000 still come out last year throughout the whole day between 11 and 8. So are you expecting a lot this year now that things seem to be really back to normal and, of course, your 10th anniversary and and a bit of a celebration this time out? I mean, we really hope so. Um, It's rain or shine. So I'm praying for good weather and lots of people to come out and enjoy. So to somebody who has never seen Ottawa Street or has any idea what this not only area, but this event is about, what describe it for us. What would you see if you just showed up on Saturday at noon? Right. So the whole road shut down. It runs from Barton to Maine, which is close to a kilometer long. Um, and you can walk the whole street. Um, you'll see the stage of live music. You'll find various beer gardens throughout the street. You'll um, see food trucks lined up. All the shops and restaurants, majority of them stay open. Um, so it's it's just best to come down and wander through. And if you can do a tour from start to finish. Boy, this has been great for the community, eh, Chelsea? I mean, it's amazing how this area has expanded. Absolutely. I mean, we love our community down here. And also, we love bringing new people in who might not normally visit Ottawa Street as well. So, What is the health of Ottawa Street and the BIA? As you said, in years past, it's traditionally uh, been known as a fabric street and, and all sorts of uh, mills, outlets uh, there, that sort of thing. That's what it was back in the heyday and such. And then as, you know, lots of communities had, had fallen on hard times and then really inventing, reinventing itself, but remembering the old history. Yes. I mean, Ottawa Street, definitely, it's much different. Um, although we have our fabric stores still, we have so much more now. I mean, we have so many restaurants and different foods to try. We have a lot of antique shops that have opened now down on Ottawa Street. We've got um, clothing stores, um, wellness, all sorts of things. I'm pretty sure you can find a lot of things on Ottawa Street. And obviously the neighborhood very much greatly embraces this. This is their event per se, but a lot of people yeah. coming from other parts of the city. You know, we've said that, that, uh, you know, Hamilton isn't necessarily one big city. It's all these little wee communities coming together that create one big city. And this has become one of those areas, hasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. What about the neighborhood and living there? Um, living in the neighborhood? I mean, it's, 
definitely a tight knit community. Everyone supports everyone. Um, our small businesses all like to support each other. We support the community. The community supports us. All the events the BIA runs are free to the community to attend. So we love bringing everyone in. We have community partners who come in for So Hungry as well, including the public library, um, East Kiwanis Boys and Girls Club. So all sorts of things. Obviously, uh, when it started, you know, um, didn't maybe anticipate it going 10 years. And with the 10th anniversary, it's expanded and such and and becoming uh, bigger and better. Where do you see this going? I mean, uh, do you see it there for another 10 years? It really seems to be quite the community event now. I mean, we hope so. That's that would be ideal is keep going, um, keep bringing in things that people love. What can this evolve into? That's a good question, really. I mean, I'm not sure if we're really trying to involve, like, evolve into anything. We just like to maintain it and do whatever we can for the community. Chelsea Braley with us, event coordinator, Ottawa Street BIA, marking 10 years of festivities. So hungry, Han- uh, Hamilton's annual restaurant and food truck rally coming to Ottawa Street, returning to Ottawa Street uh, this Saturday, 11 a.m. to 8 p.m. Looks like it's going to be a pretty good weekend. Website, where do we go to find out more about all of this, Chelsea? Yep, you can go to SoHungry.com. There's a map up now with the different food trucks and where they are. You can also check out our Facebook page, which is where most of our updates come from, including the band lineup. All right, Chelsea, good luck this year. Thank you so much. Chelsea Braley with us, event coordinator, Ottawa Street BIA, 10th edition of So Hungry. That's S-E-W. You know the history. Annual uh, Hamilton's annual restaurant and food truck rally uh, back at Ottawa Street this Saturday for uh, the 10th anniversary of. And the weather looks pretty good. Man, it's like uh, 28, today, uh, 28 today in the hammer. Uh, looking at a much more comfortable 22 tomorrow. Hey, what am I doing? Don't complain about a 28 when you're sitting at May 12th. Come on. Tragic news uh, again uh, the other day this week coming up when we find out that yet another police officer has been killed in the line of duty in this province, in this country. This used to be an anomaly. And now, my goodness, I think we're up to 10 since September uh, and, and of course, the latest being OPP Sergeant Eric Mueller, who uh, lost his life uh, answering a call, answering a call in a community about 50K outside of uh, Ottawa. And two other officers injured, one out of hospital, one still in hospital. And f- from what we've been hearing, uh, they didn't stand much of a chance and, and were ambushed, I believe, is the word that the commissioner used. To talk more about all of this, Taria Isri is with us, reporter for Global News in Ottawa, and with us now. Taria, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am. Thanks for having me. Uh, maybe I shouldn't have cho- used that choice of words to bring you on. I'm very sorry about that. I apologize uh, for my lack of sensitivity, but it's just one of those crutch phrases that I use. But what is the feeling like there? Um uh, it seems that we don't know a lot of information about this. No, it's still, you know, a lot of this is really unclear. I mean, police responded to uh, reports of gunshots in this small community of only about 1,100 people, um, you know, 45 minutes from Ottawa. It's the town of Bourget. So, um, you know, officers responded. It was around 2 a.m. There were three officers and then as you said, the commissioner said these three officers were ambushed. All three were shot. Uh, sadly, Sergeant Mueller did not survive. Uh, his two colleagues were also injured. Last we checked, uh, 
One of those officers has been released from hospital. The other is in critical but stable condition. But it's really unclear as to as to why or how this happened. There is a 39-year-old man, Alan uh, Belfoy. He's now charged with first-degree murder and two counts of attempted murder. Um, but, you know, this is now before the court, so we're not getting too much more information. But, you know, it's it, the commissioner called this senseless. And really, by all accounts, Sergeant Mueller was a, a model officer, which just makes this all the more sad. We hear this is, as you said, a, a small town. Uh, we hear that everybody knew everybody, but not many people knew anything about what was going on in this residence. Is that accurate? Yeah, it is. I was speaking to neighbors all day yesterday, and they didn't really know the the man who lived in the house. Um, so that just kind of adds to the mystery. Um, but everyone I spoke to in the community was was understandably shocked and shaken that there was this level of gun violence. I mean, this is a uh, as I said, a small community, and this is a fairly quiet residential street. Um, so it really has left a lot of people shaken. I spoke to one man. He uh, was up in the middle of the night, and he heard the gunshots go off. And he said, "I I knew immediately that you know that was gunfire." And you know, a few minutes later, there were just tons of police cars, ambulances. So. Um, yeah, it's definitely left a lot of people really unsettled, as you point out. I mean, this is, you know, Canadian police officers, I believe 10 recently have died mm-hmm. on the job. So it has a lot of people asking, you know, what can be done to make working conditions safer? What needs to change? I mean, the prime minister said he will be speaking with the minister of public safety and the minister of justice to look at solutions. But he himself said this has to stop. Um, do we know much more about the shooter or anyone else that lived in that residence? Was there Were there other people in the house? Do we know any of that? We really don't know much about the alleged shooter other than the fact that he um, it was from this town. Police said that they recovered a long gun at the scene of the crime. It's not clear if that was the um, murder weapon. So really, a lot of this remains a mystery. Um, It doesn't appear that anybody else was in the house. Um, Police said that they've only got one, you know, they have one person in custody. They're not looking at any other suspects. So uh, that's that's all the information we have now. Um, But the fact that he was charged with first degree murder obviously raises some questions. So hopefully that information comes out as this uh, as this story evolves, but obviously very tragic for the police community and for Sergeant mm. Mueller's family. Uh, you know, he's and, described as a family man, a coach, a mentor, really an exemplary officer and member of his community. So it's quite the loss. And have we heard anything more? We understand one officer is out of hospital. The one that's in is still in is in critical condition. Anything more on his health? We know that he's in stable condition. He did suffer gunshot wounds, but beyond that, uh, we don't. Police had asked uh, that we respect the privacy of the other two officers mm-hmm. who were injured. Uh, the same goes for Sergeant Mueller's family. I know OPP is still working out uh, the funeral arrangements for the sergeant, right. but right now we don't have too much more information on the condition of the, um, the, the officer who remains at a hospital in Ottawa. 
I think what's also surprising in this, uh, Taria, is that the, they apprehended a suspect alive. You would just think that, you know, because somebody would have to come in after these officers endured what they did and the shooting that they did and somehow captured this person alive. Well, I mean, yeah, by all accounts, uh, he wasn't injured. He wasn't treated in hospital, so that was just he wasn't shot at. So that yeah. sort of adds to, you know, the theory that this was an ambush. Um, we were speaking to Bill Dixon with the OPP yesterday, and he said, you know, the officers arrived just around two. Um, then they had called for backup, and then there was radio silence. So other officers arrived on scene. They had apprehended the suspect. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they weren't injured, and it doesn't appear that the suspect was either. Wow. Any uh, talk of another news conference coming up or anything where you could get more information? Uh, at this point, no. But I think, you know, we will be getting information as the sort of the, the days and perhaps weeks go on, just specifically related to the funeral. I think that's the that's the right. big question now. Um, when when will that happen? And, you know, how the OPP and the community of first responders in Ontario and across the country will honor this officer who was only 42 years old. Mm. Uh, He had joined the service when he was 21. So he had spent half of his life in uniform. And, you know, an interesting fact about Sergeant Mueller was that in 2008, he was seriously injured while making another arrest. Um, He was hit by a vehicle uh, in pursuit of a suspect. So, you know, he he Mm. survived that. And so it's quite sad that he, you know, uh, more than a decade later would die on the job. And it really underlines the dangers that, you know, police officers walk into routinely mm-hmm. and these dangers that seem to be even more elevated recently with, with the number of deaths we've seen over the past year. Taria Isri with us, reporter for Global News based out of Ottawa, giving us the latest on the shooting death of OPP Sergeant Mueller and trying to make sense of it all. Taria, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. I mean, our condolences uh, to everybody out there. Good luck covering this. Thank you. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. So uh, initially, and and you know, there's no other city that knows more about getting uh, and not getting and then getting and then not getting and then getting and not getting an NHL team than Hamilton. So I'm sure a lot of Hamiltonians are saying, yeah, who gives a rat's rear end about any of this? Uh, but it started out that Ryan Reynolds was going to bring some excitement to Ottawa, the town that fun forgot, when he showed interest in purchasing the Ottawa Senators. And it kind of went on for a while and, um, you know, eventually started to pick up a bit of steam. And, wow, this might really actually happen. And it just seemed too seamless <laughs> to be true. And certainly that's the case because now we're hearing, well, maybe it's not going to go through. And that they have uh, the the investment group involving Ryan Reynolds has pulled out just as last week we're hearing Snoop Dogg is also interested along with the weekend in another consortium of people to to purchase the team and and what is going on and oh yeah let's not forget the uh, the ever famous Gary Bettman who said lines like you know all the teams in the NHL are undervalued 
And you have to wonder how much of this is just about stirring up a hornet's, a hornet's nest to gain publicity and increase the price of the product, uh, which, of course, is what Gary Bettman's job is. Let's bring in Moshe Lander, Senior uh, Economics Lecturer at Concordia University, and with us now. Moshe, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am well. Thank you very much for asking. So what's happening here, Moshe? I mean, it looked like it was sort of a done deal, but we know that that never really happens. There's no such thing as a done deal in the NHL. Where, where are we with well, it's just not a done deal with the Ryan Reynolds group. There's six other bidders that are probably going to submit something on Monday. And so I guess it's going to be one of them uh, that will become the owner. I, I would have said in the very beginning of the process when Ryan Reynolds said that he wanted to be the owner, that that's laughable. Uh, but when he hooked on with a, another group that had deep pockets, uh, I would have actually said as of about 24 hours ago, he's the likely winner. Uh, I think what might happen here is one of those other six bids will get it and maybe Ryan Reynolds will find his way into one of those groups. Ah, so is that the Reynolds connection then? Is that his, well, is it his deal is gone and he might jump in with another or that his deal is still viable or is he out completely? Well, his group, I think, has backed out. What they wanted was exclusive negotiating rights, which is a great way to push down uh, the price that uh, they would have bid, right? If they can secure that they are the only ones who can negotiate over uh, the the arena, then they have a little bit of leverage in dealing with the Melnick daughters, which are the, the two that are selling the, the club right now. Uh, the NHL pushed back and said, we don't give exclusive negotiating rights to anybody because we know it pushes down the value that you're going to bid. So no, forget that. And so the group said, all right, well then forget you. So that doesn't mean that Reynolds is. No. So for everybody who's salivating at the thought of Deadpool here and, uh, you know, creating <laughs> some sort of, uh, you know, welcome to Ottawa instead of welcome to Brexham and being able to watch all of this uh, unfold on Netflix, he still can join. Look, the, the bid is probably going to be somewhere around, uh, I'm going to say $1.1 billion. And if Ryan Reynolds is coming to the table, he, he doesn't have the liquidity to put up more than like five to 10% of that. Uh, but he does have a hundred million followers uh, on his various social media platforms. So, you know, that's enough for Gary Bettman to say, all right, uh, even if a 10th of those are non-NHL watchers, uh, that's still 10 million people that you're pulling in. Uh, those are great ratings. Are NHL teams under... Well, uh, I mean, it's more than what I can afford, so <laughs> I'd say no. But no, um, it's not that they're undervalued. It's that the, the way that the NHL, like any professional sport, except the CFL, designs its product is to make sure that there is more demand than there is supply. So there's 32 franchises in the NHL. And what you do is you try and dangle Hamilton, Quebec City, Houston uh, out there and saying, you know, if you want to build a publicly funded arena and if you want to come up with tax concessions and if you want to come up with uh, subsidized land for commercial development, uh, then, you know, hey, we're, we're interested in talking uh, or maybe we can get your franchise relocation. And that's what drives up the value of the franchises. So, you know, when Ottawa sets the record on Monday at whatever, 1 billion, 1.1 billion, uh, that just sets the floor then for the next franchise that goes up for sale whenever they go uh, to say, all right, well, if Ottawa's worth 1.1, we're probably worth 1.5. A new arena, just a given here. I mean, is that is is that propelling all of this? And 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 what about the location of a new arena? I, I've lived in Ottawa for a year. I, Canada, my goodness, it, it seemed uh, the drive in and out was just unbelievable. Uh, what about plopping this thing downtown? Is there any? 
That is the plan. So the LeBreton Flats location, which is just west of uh, Parliament and the Supreme Court, yeah. kind of just downtown adjacent. Yeah, it's a perfect spot. And it's now connected up to Ottawa has built a light rail transit system and it passes right by there. So it's the dream location. Um, Calgary has just negotiated for itself a new arena uh, after eight years of back and forth. And all they're doing is building one block north of the existing saddle dome. Um, this thing is anything but a done deal. So the the value of the franchise uh, is not really including what is to come. It, I hope it doesn't take eight years, but even if it takes three, five years, uh, those negotiations can be pretty arduous and, and people in Hamilton are going to get their hopes up because this is how the rumors start that, well, if they can't negotiate, maybe Hamilton will get them. Uh, at the end of the day, they will get a new arena. And when that new arena opens, that'll add somewhere in the vicinity of around $750 million to the value of the franchise. And I don't think anybody in Hamilton is going to hold their breath here, Moshe. We've been through this too many times. We've, we've been left in tears in the fetal position. Uh, Moshe Lander with a senior economics lecturer, Concordia University, the future of the Ottawa Senators. Stay tuned. It's not over yet. Moshe, thanks for the time and insight. I guess it was about a matter of time. You know, I don't see a lot of movies because I, I don't go see movies unless I know they're really, really good because I don't like to waste two hours of my day. I know my wife will argue. Uh, and if we could have her on right now, believe me, there's the segment. And Carmi's like sitting in the in the waiting room. Um, but I did like the Facebook movie. And if the Blackberry movie is anywhere as good, then it'll probably be pretty cool, too. Yes, there is a story of Blackberry. And... Uh, in other news, uh, Twitter has a new CEO. That's not a movie. That's not fiction. That's real life. Let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. So great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. So let's start with the CEO, the new CEO of Twitter. And uh, I forget her name. Um, it's a, I had it written down. I can't find it right now. But what are your thoughts of this? How does this change the narrative? It, it Well, I, I don't think the dumpster fire that is Twitter is going to be going out anytime soon. Her name, and we will remember this because we're going to be hearing it a lot over the next little while. Her name is Linda Yaccarino. Uh, and she, uh, right up until she got this job, she was the CEO. She was the, the honcho over at NBC Universal. Yeah, if you've heard of the Peacock uh, online streaming service that NBC launched, she was responsible for it. And she has a very long history of in the digital streaming space. Uh, she's an expert in kind of monetizing platforms, digital advertising. And I think Elon Musk is sending a message because she really is kind of a digital advertising guru. He's basically saying he recognizes that they've, you know, all the advertisers have fled the platform uh, and he's bringing in someone who knows ads, who knows online ads to hopefully send a message uh, that you, know, you can have confidence in Twitter as an advertising platform. Remains to be seen. She's getting. She, she will be taking over the role in about six weeks, but she's already announcing it now, uh, and she's got a bit of a track record. It'll be interesting to see if that plays out. Elon Musk isn't disappearing. He says he's still going to be the CTO, so Chief Technology Officer. He's going to be responsible for what he calls sysops or systems operations, so all the techie bits in the background. He's still going to have his fingers very deeply into the pie. So. He's not going anywhere, and he's kind of a he's kind of a meddling manager. He's a micromanager. We know that. So, is he going to allow Linda Yaccarina to really do her thing, or did he just bring her in to you know essentially almost like a PR thing? Right? He's still going to be running the company, but he he gets to tell people, "I've got an adult in the room now. Everything's going to be okay." I'm not quite buying what he's selling, and I don't think anyone else should too. Let's just wait and see. 
All right. He also talked about an all-in-one app, everything all-in-one. Did you hear anything about that or, or what that, what that's all about? Uh, he's been saying that forever. He, he likes to call it X. And of course, they, they recently changed the name of Twitter to X. Uh, so the, the, the company isn't even called Twitter Inc. anymore. It's just called X. And uh, he says it'll be an app that lets you do everything, kind of like what they do in China, where it's, it's social media, you use it for messaging, you use it for travel, you use it for banking, making transactions, paying, paying for things, um, that essentially your entire life is run on this app. But you know, it's it's kind of it, it all comes down to trust for me. When I install an app on my phone, I have to trust the organization that is responsible for it because they're going to be handling some pretty sensitive data. And I'm not really sure I want to trust Elon Musk with my most sensitive data, especially financial data. So if he wants me to basically hand my life over to him on my phone, uh, he's going to have to get a lot more trustworthy a lot more quickly. And I'll be honest with you, I don't see that happening anytime soon. He's been crowing about this everything app for the better part of the last two years. I still haven't seen anything. And in the digital space, we call that vaporware. Uh, and I don't think we're going to be seeing that anytime soon. Wait a sec, Carmi. Everybody trusts him when it comes to rockets. I mean, <laughs> if they didn't trust him, they wouldn't strap themselves one of his candles and go up into space. Yeah, that's and and I think the difference between SpaceX and Tesla and now Twitter is that with those first two companies, he has he's basically allowed them to be run by adults. So it's SpaceX, for example, it's Gwen Shotwell, who's the chief operating officer, but everyone knows that she is the one who the buck stops with her. And he's really he has not been as directly involved in SpaceX operations since he took Twitter over. And he basically lets those companies kind of run on their own. Uh, works for Tesla because it's a publicly traded company. The less Elon muddling, the better. And certainly the same thing with SpaceX is that he's not close to the controls. He certainly shows up at mission control when there's a big mission, uh, you know, smiles for PR purposes. But, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, he's spending all of his time with Twitter now, which is probably good for SpaceX. The less involved he is there, the better. CBC and Twitter made up. I loved his thing with the two cowboys. You just can't quit us. Where's this? Feud? Where's this feud at? Uh, well, CBC has now returned, or they they they've unpaused their activity on Twitter. So they announced a few weeks ago that uh, because of Elon Musk's position on uh, on on adding labels, uh, derogatory labels about being government funded to outlets like NPR. Uh, and CBC uh, and PBS in the U.S., uh, they decided that they just, in all good conscience, could not continue to operate on the platform. And we're going to basically stand down to, to see what happened next. They didn't delete their accounts. They just stopped posting to them. Uh, so they quietly came back on. And of course, Elon Musk noticed and and uh, and started tweeting at them. Um, you know, this is, I think, I think it's good for all media organizations to always be looking at their social media platforms and asking themselves, does it make sense to be there? And I think when Elon Musk has one of his little childish fits, it's probably a, a good idea for legitimate organizations to distance themselves from him. Not good for the brand. And I think they decided that once things started to settle down a little bit, it made sense for them to come back. Doesn't mean they won't leave at some point in the future. Doesn't mean at some point that Twitter won't fall below kind of a line of irrelevance and they'll just leave for good. But we're not quite there yet. All right. The Blackberry movie. What have you heard? Have you seen it? What do you know about it? 
I am supposed to be going to see it this weekend. My son has already seen it and raved about it. He was just really, uh, yeah, and and the the reviews are phenomenal. It's for for a Canadian movie about uh, a, a technology that no one uses anymore, about a company that basically imploded in full view of the world. Uh, it's 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 a remarkable film, uh, and everything I've seen about it suggests like I want to go see it, and then I'm going to want to watch it at home again and again and again when it's available digitally. So uh, reviews are amazing. Uh, the actors phenomenal. Uh, the writing incredible it it takes some liberties with the story so it's not a documentary so it is based on the true story all of the characters there are real uh, but those who were involved so for example jim balsilli who was famously the co-ceo says that it's kind of hyperbolic it's it's a little bit over the top but he still supports it and he's still showing up he's doing press with the uh, production team so you know he's a fan and he's giving it thumbs up and i figure if balsilli is in that really says something because he was always the hardest nut to crack uh, in terms of, uh, of you know, the leadership of the company. So it tells a story that all Canadians really should know, because for a while, BlackBerry was the biggest tech company in Canada. Uh, and there are lessons there that if even if you don't work in technology, whatever business you're in, whether you're an employee or an employer, uh, those lessons are going to be taught in schools, especially business schools for decades to come. Uh, and unfortunately, it was BlackBerry that made those lessons real. So Definitely a must-see movie if you're a Canadian who cares about business in this country. All right, just less than a minute left. Um, does it reveal why the company failed? Does it does it get to that part of it? It certainly does. I mean, it's it certainly like if there's one thing that stands out in this movie is that the 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 amount of arrogance uh, that drove this company. And I say this as a journalist who covered the company during its day. Uh, it, it was was off the charts, and they were so arrogant that they did not allow themselves to see the threat from Apple's iPhone. Uh, they felt that it was a toy. They laughed at it. It doesn't have a keyboard. Who would want to use it? It's 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 no one's going to take it seriously. And of course, we all know what happened next. So you know, why did they fail? They didn't pivot fast enough because they simply didn't want to pivot and they they believed their own PR. Uh, and in any business, when you start looking in the mirror and thinking that you are invulnerable, guess what? That's when you're vulnerable. Yeah, there you go. Uh, Carmi Levy with us, technology analyst and journalist and now movie reviewer, although hasn't seen it, but his son has. And it's supposed to be great. So keep your eyes peeled for the Blackberry movie uh, in theaters. Uh, Carmi, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. I will, Scott. You too. Thank you. 900 CHML. It's Hamilton Today. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, obviously, another sad week in uh, Canada, and, and this is just seems like such an anomaly. But since September, 10 officers have died in the line of duty, nine of those murdered, uh, including the ambush that happened yesterday that took the uh, life of Sergeant Eric Mueller um, just outside of Ottawa. And we remember in the last little bit, the perception of police has not been good. You know, uh, time to defund the police. We don't need them. Ba 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 ba. And it just seems we live in an unbelievable world of extremes, uh, which calls for such uh, actions. And now, um, as the mad on, I guess, for police continues, uh, here we are presented with a sad reality that, uh, in fact, uh, we've lost 10 since, since September in the line of duty. Has our attitude of police officers changed? Has it changed now that 10 have lost their lives right in front of us all? And there's your blast of reality. Let's bring in Daniel Jones, Chair of Justice Studies at Norquest College in Edmonton, a retired police officer and host of the podcast, Just Us on, Ju on Justice and Other Things. And Daniel is with us now. Daniel, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. 
I'm well. Thank you very much. I'm, I'm of course saddened with the news of yet another police death. Um, we've certainly seen the anti-police movement that has, um, you know, maybe this has largely come out of the United States, but there's many in Canada that like to draw those parallels uh, with the United States and such. Um, do do are, are are we angry with the police? Uh, do we want to defund the police? Has what we've seen happen in the last uh, several months changed our attitude of police? Where are our heads in Canada now, Daniel? That's a great question. And, and it's interesting when you see the deaths of the police officers, the ones in Edmonton, the most recent one in Ontario, um, you see an outpouring of support from community members, which you really do see. And I, I, I you see that in, a, in an amazing way. But at the same time, you see people posting they shouldn't have heroes funerals, the amount of harm that they've done. So the, there is a, a mix in there of uh, anti-police rhetoric. And there is research that shows if the police are seen as legitimate community power holders and people in the community, that the people are less apt to uh, assault a police officer, the less apt to even commit crime. And I think the reverse is true. And I can't prove that academically because it's just statistical significance. But I have my theory is that the more we talk about the police as villainous, and 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 being bad, the more we uh, vilify them, the easier it becomes to commit violence against them. Is the movement to uh, defund the police is it justified in any way? You know, it's very funny. The comment I was just having a conversation about this. There's a lot of people that talk about demand reduction in policing and defunding the police at the same time. Those conversations are actually pretty similar. Uh, and I think what happens is people get an emotional response to defund the police. I think it's about making sure everyone's funded properly. The police need to be funded properly, but so do social agencies that prevent some of these other things need to be funded properly. I think the discussion has to be a little bit more richer. And what does that actually mean? And when you start to look at I'll use the Edmonton Police Service for an example. They have areas where they've taken money that they paid used to pay police officers or could pay police officers, and they're hiring social navigators out of some of our social service agencies, and they're hiring uh, uh, offender management so people that are social workers and and involved in that space to work with the police directly. So, kind of in 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 a way, defunding themselves to hire in those other uh, non police responses to work together in a collaborative way. Do the majority think this way? Is this the extremes? Um, you know, it seems that we want to defund rather than meet in the middle and find a solution in some way, as if defunding yeah. is the answer. Yeah, I, 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 and I think that's the problem. Is the funding seems it's it's a simple thing to say, but there, but when you ask the individuals on the extremes about defunding, the question you just have to ask, and then what? And then what? And oftentimes I say the people that defund the police movement are it's a virtue of the privileges because people don't they they may not have ever needed the police. And when you go into inner cities in Edmonton or you go into Minneapolis or you go into any of these places and go to any inner cities and ask the question, do you want the police gone? The answer is often no. We want the police to be here, but they want the police to be here different. And that's where the policing has to change and reform a bit in how we interact with the community and get more, get back to that community-based policing at the level with the community and be part of the community. I think if that's done, you're going to see a reversal of this, this movement. And I think sometimes the police just have to start uh, going back to what they know, what they did for years and years and years, and that's be engaged with community. Uh, you know, there goes back to the old beat cop story, right? Um, has the killing of 10 officers since September, has that changed our perception? I mean, we're hearing issues with recruiting. I mean, who wants who wants this gig if everybody hates you and oh, yeah, you could die. 
Absolutely. And you, and you see what you've just seen the OPP make some changes to their hiring practices because of, because of the recruiting issue. Uh, that's no different in Edmonton. And, and I think there's two things with that. There's yes, there's 10 deaths, which I, I had a student come to me and tell me after the, the members were killed in Edmonton that his, his mom's like, you're not allowed to be a police officer anymore. Um, and families start to worry. And because, and we were always told, even when I was starting at policing, it's a rare thing. It doesn't happen very often. In my dad's career of just about 30 years, there was one police murder while my dad was an active police officer, and that was Ezio Ferrone. Um, unfortunately, uh, you know, in, in, in my career, and, and now we're starting to see it happen more, and it's, it seems not as, in, not as infrequent as it used to be. And I just hope this isn't a trend that continues, and I hope it's just an anomaly. But I think we got to start thinking about how do we get that police legitimacy piece built back up. Daniel Jones with us, chair of Justice Studies at Norquest College in Edmonton, retired police officer, host of the podcast, Just Us on Justice and Other Things. Daniel, thanks for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thanks. You have a great day. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. We certainly know lots. Uh, we've talked about it a lot here in regard to uh, the Michael Chong, MP Michael Chong, uh, being threatened uh, through a now expelled diplomat uh, here, as well as his family being targeted. Uh, Katie Telford recently said, the chief of staff of the prime minister during committee, that uh, that the prime minister sees everything. And despite that, apparently this information didn't make it to the prime minister ceases and the prime minister's national security advisor have said yes that info was fed up the chain however the prime minister said he didn't see it uh and uh is calling on ceases uh sort of throwing them under the bus to be more uh forthright about this let's bring in daniel perry consultant summa strategies and with us now daniel thanks for the time i hope you're well Daniel, how do we keep squaring this circle? I mean, is is this just fancy wordsmithing or is somebody not telling the truth or what's the solution here? Because it seems that uh, the prime minister is constantly trying to plead ignorant here. Uh, when we have people saying that he got it, he didn't get it. How does he move forward with this? Well, I'll stop you there because a politician line would be shocking for uh, that to ever happen. Um, I think what we're seeing here is this, this government unable to put this to sleep. It just keeps going on and on for them. And no matter what they do, they're always behind the story. They're behind the eight ball. And I think if you're inside a primary stock, you're probably pretty frustrated about that right now. Uh, and information coming up, and this is sort of the play, like, look, even Stephen Harper's former deputy chief of staff saying that they were not briefed on any foreign interference issue. But my goodness, that was an awful long time ago, Daniel. And I remember when, when once China was the golden goose that everybody wanted a piece of post pandemic, post the two Michaels, it's a completely different world. And the same deputy chief of staff said, that's why we need an inquiry. Does the fact that this former deputy chief of staff was not briefed on this stuff eight or so years ago, how does that play into this? I think, like you said, it's just a different time, to be frank with you. Uh, Canada's relationship with China has evolved a lot over the recent years, especially when I had a very good relationship. Not so much anymore. And I think it would be important to note that uh, Harper's deputy chief of staff is also and was a former advisor to Pierre, a former conservative leader. So there might be some politics to that. But 
as someone in the prime minister's office definitely means something um and it just keeps coming out slowly like we've seen many times with scandals and scandals that they're just not trying to prove and i think if they want to get ahead of this they just have to do that we're having a difficult uh, time with the connection here but we'll try to bear through daniel um globe and mail now reporting that ceases and it's amazing that we're hearing all of this, but it doesn't make it to the prime minister's office. Uh, CSIS has known about this diplomat that was expelled and we're following him pretty much as soon as he got into the country for like three years. Yeah, that, to me, that's just mind blowing. Um, I understand that CSIS keeps an eye on some troublesome diplomats as they come to Canada, um, but no one acting for that long. That's a little bit suspicious to me. I think most people, when they hear that, they find that a little bit suspicious as well. Where do you think this is going, Daniel? I mean, it's it appears like it's not going to end. The leaks are going to continue. The information is just going to be more damaging. How, how how you were talking about the prime minister getting ahead of it? Clearly, that does not seem to be happening. Where does this go? Because in the I meantime, in the meantime, the, the unfortunate thing is, in the meantime, Canadians are now questioning their institutions mm-hmm. because the prime minister won't come clean. Yeah, and I think that's really unfortunate for democracy and Canadians trust in our institutions. I think the story keeps going as long as stuff keeps coming out about it. Um, I'm sure the Prime Minister is really hoping for David Johnson's report to come out and that to silence everything. And it really seems like that's where they're placing their bets and they're really hedging on that. Um, only time will tell, but uh, I think this uh, story has a legs for a little bit longer. I think we'll be talking about it till the end of session in, in middle of June. Do you not think that this just puts even more pressure on uh, David Johnson to launch a public inquiry? It's not lightening up. Uh, what could he possibly say that distracts the country to say, oh, yeah, never mind here. Let's move on. <laughs> it's all good, people. Don't worry. I looked into it personally. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. uh, no, I think you're exactly right. And even the House of Commons passed a motion uh, early this week calling for tougher restrictions on China, calling for a public uh, look into this. So I think if the prime minister's office does want to get ahead of this, I think they just bite the bullet and just do the public inquiry and, and hopefully drag it out over the summer when no one's paying attention, come back uh, in the fall, deal with it for another week and then put it to bed and say, we have new rules in place. This will never happen again. Uh, another committee. We talked about this earlier. Boy, we've already got one. That's how we heard the chief of staff testify that he sees everything. What's another committee going to do? I mean, my goodness, around and around and around we go. Well, it's a peak Ottawa thing to put more government resources into it to try to get a different answer when the same answer comes out. Uh, I think a public inquiry would hopefully get more of this out into it. The challenging thing is when it comes to uh, sensitive information like our intelligence community, we're probably not going to get all the information we want to see out of it. So it's kind of a double-edged sword in that sense. Uh, So does David Johnson have any choice but to call a public inquiry? Uh, I think David Johnson is the only one who gets to decide that. I think if, you, if right now, if we're looking at it, I think that's going to be one of his recommendations to the government, and then it's going to be up to the government to decide if they want to do it or not. If he, if somehow there isn't one, I mean, what will the reaction of Canadians be? Anger, frustration. Um, I think Canadians that are paying attention and are watching this are frustrated and concerned about it. Is the average Canadian looking into this? That's hard to say. Daniel Perry with us, consultant, Summa Strategies. Daniel, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Same to you. Take care. We've continually talked about the situation with China and Canada. At once, this was a bromance. It's now turned into more of a row. Um, and, and, you know, whether it's the two Michaels, post-COVID-19, and, and, and certainly with 
the interference that we're seeing now and and what has happened with Michael Chong and his family and of course a, a diplomat Chinese diplomat being expelled where is this relationship going is it over how do we mend fences or is uh, there bigger fish to be fried before that even happens let's bring in Elliot Tepper emeritus prof- uh, professor emeritus political science Carleton University and with us now Elliot thank you for the time i hope you're well Oh, uh, thank you, Scott. Same to you. You know, many said Elliot when when before the diplomat was expelled, it took like a week to do so. Although now we're hearing that they've been following this guy for like three years since the day he actually set foot in the country. That being ceases. Um, anyway, many said that if we if we kick out, expel the diplomat, that uh, you know we're done. There's going to be threats and retaliation of sorts uh, on behalf of Canada, uh, or sorry, towards Canada. That being said, when have we not been? Uh, threatened or retaliated or harassed, uh, considering there's a beef ban going on right now. Um, is there ever a time when we're not under the pressure of China? Of course, all states around the world have their own rules on what can come in and what goes out. Uh, you can say there's normal trade frictions, but when they're politically inspired uh, and bogus uh, means are put in place to restrict the normal flow of, of goods and services, then it's a different situation. The kind of banning that you're talking about now, a lot of the most important ones, the two key ones, go back to, of course, when the two Michaels were uh, yeah. illegally detained as part of the Ming Wanzhou episode, and China slapped on quite spurious uh, reasons for not buying some key things from us that the for certain sectors, in, in particular canola, uh, which was a, a major product for Canada going to China, and also pork. The beef matter was uh, actually relating to some illness issues, but that's it's thought that's going to be uh, also politically manipulated. The whole question is, will the world get used to the idea that China uses economic coercion as a, as a parallel device for all of their other activities? And we know that there's influence operations, and that, of course, you and I have been talking about a lot. Do we now realize that uh, China's not the golden goose we thought it was 10, 20, 30 years ago? <laughs> the problem is it very soon is going to be the world's largest economy. Mm. We also know that uh, a few things. One is that we are very heavily dependent on them for selling certain of our products, and much of the world is very heavily dependent on China for delivery, as it turns out. Uh, such as uh, COVID-related material, our big box stores would look pretty empty if we didn't have something, if we didn't have trade relations with China in those issues. But Europe has now come to the conclusion, and here's the formula that I suspect is going to be widespread. The EU has said, we will not decouple from China. That is, we we can't really break all economic relations, but we will de-risk. We are no longer going to go into the kind of dependency that Europe did in terms of Russia on energy imports. And look what happened, uh, you know, when a crisis came. Uh, there's an Australian Strategic Policy Institute, a think tank in Australia, said that China carried out, quoting, here's 73 incidents of economic coercion aimed at 19 countries, not just us, between yeah. 2020 and 2022. Uh, and then they list the countries, and it, it is, we're not even on the list, Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, East Asia, Taiwan. So uh, this is not an uncommon practice by China to use economic coercion as one more element of how they're behaving in the world. 
Does China care about our trade with them? Do they have anything to lose? You talked about the de-risk. Does the, that de-risk hurt China? Well, they do, do they want to know little pork and, and certainly our wheat, as it turns out. Uh, global trade in, in Canada is a major trading country. Uh, matters differentially around the world. I think a little perspective on this might be helpful because we see ourselves primarily because of the many products that we, you know, we buy. That is, we buy commodities and uh, electronics primarily from China, and they primarily buy raw resources and, uh, and uh, mineral deposits and that sort of thing from us. But we should be, compared to Australia in particular and others, Lithuania, which just stood up to uh, China and paid a heavy cost, the U.S. is actually our number one trading partner by far. A lot is put, put in the press that uh, China is our number two trading partner. But the U.S. has 70, 77% of our total Canadian exports. And I think for Ontario, it's probably, you know, in the 90s. My guess is, uh, last I looked, it was 94%. That was a while ago. So over, over half a trillion dollars goes uh, into the trading partner with the U.S., under 22 billion with China. So uh, 77% total for the U.S., 3.7%, Scott, uh, yeah. is our dependency on our trade with China. We are much better, uh, much better positioned, but we should also remind ourselves when we're talking about trade being used as part of a coercive response to what? To influence operations. We've talked a lot, you and I, and everybody else is talking about Michael Chong but those influence operations spread to a number of other MPs, and we know into the diaspora and uh, to some certain student leaders that were elected. So there's very sophisticated, longstanding influence operation, but that's only one of the factors that uh, we should be paying attention to, and others have been. Uh, China has also been engaged in, in a major way, it is alleged with justification, in intellectual property theft. So a lot of the rise of China comes from these kind of unequal trading relations where we have an open trading economy and they restrict what we can do in China. But beyond that, there has been intellectual property theft. Uh, so that right now, increasingly, China is coming into a focus because of the behavior you and I are talking about as a systemic or strategic uh, country of concern. And it's not just China to continue the expanding. It's China, Russia, and Iran that have been name-checked as uh, countries that we have to be worried about in terms of influence operations, uh, coercive, covert, or corrupt. And that's the key uh, phrase uh, going on in terms of Canada. U.S. has no problem handling this issue with China. We've seen recently uh, them, uh, as you said, it involves many countries, uh, the police stations in the United States. Bango, there was a million, and I shouldn't say that, I'm exaggerating. There was plenty of charges laid, and, and there is an active investigation going on with the FBI, yet the RCMP, or we, we just seem to be fumbling in all of this. Uh, they take a much stronger stance. What if Canada reacted the same way and just said, you, 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 and you, out, police stations, police stations, police stations, closed, let's move on? You do it carefully. Any country has to do it very carefully based on evidence. The fact that the U.S. can do things... Uh that's uh, a middle power, I was going to say smaller power, a middle power like Canada and many others around the world have to think twice uh, in order to, you know, for that same behavior. But do expect that there is going to be a very enhanced um, and more robust defense against these kinds of activities. 
all of them. That's the influence operations, the intellectual property theft, cyber hacking, and this is a grave concern we should talk about more sometime. All of this is going to happen in the last budget. You mentioned the um, RCMP and these police stations in the last budget, very quietly, another, I think, 40, I don't know the figure, $49 million or so is given to the uh, RCMP specifically, specifically to deal with uh, influence operations. And, and a, new, uh, a new center is being created as well to deal with national security and influence operations. Uh, there's some money put to that. So Canada, I think, will be stepping up its game. And that's really the message. We have to step up our game. I was very impressed when uh, Richard Fadden wrote an op-ed. Richard Fadden was the former head of our CSIS and the mm -hmm. advisor to the prime ministers and uh, by both the conservatives and liberals. And he concluded, and I'll quote, we need to find a way to coexist while pushing back when necessary. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of the Canadian formula. And I think that's what we're struggling to, uh, to deal with. And I think we are doing it. I think you'll see a lot more of that coming down the pike. Elliot Tepper with us, Emeritus Professor, Political Science, Carleton University. Elliot, always fun. Thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Um, thank, uh, thank you, Scott. And yes, it's, it's glorious to be in Canada in the spring. <laughs> it is, that's for sure. Let's bring in Scott Radley, host of the Scott Radley Show. You can read him in your Hamilton Spectator. Coming up after the 6 o'clock news, he is with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am really well. How are you? So far, so good. What happened to Ryan Reynolds and the Ottawa Senators? I thought this was a done deal. Nothing's ever simple. Now we see Snoop Dogg and The Weeknd involved in another uh, bid process. Two different bids, yeah. They're Two competing. different bids. Yeah, they're competing. So, and I hear there's like five or six that could be there. Well, maybe that's including Ryan Reynolds. So what happened to his? I understand it all centered around the arena, and he may end up with another bid group. What, what do you know? Well, I know, well, for everything we've read, the NHL really, really wanted Ryan Reynolds involved somehow. And that all goes back to, uh, have you seen his reality series called Welcome to Wrexham? No. Okay. So it's, he bought a fifth, yeah, but the soccer team, fifth yeah. division Welsh soccer team that was in a town yeah. called Wrexham that was, you know, a, a struggling town. And he and another actor went in and bought it and made a reality show about trying to turn this team around, which they have. And so I get that the NHL looks at this series and goes, wow, that we need that kind of thing for They're us. looking for a Netflix series like they got an F1. They, well, they want to yeah, ride tennis, the survive thing. Right, and tennis has one, the, 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 the tennis uh, tournament, and uh, PGA Tour has Golf, one of these yep. reality shows. The problem with that is I don't know that you bring someone in as an owner of a team for that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> that, really? that's, that's got a short you know, life cycle. That, you that, think so? Well, yeah. And I do. Uh, no, I like that. That seems to me to be a really small minded, not very visionary reason to bring someone. If you want to pay Ryan Reynolds to do one of those reality shows. Yeah. I mean, the idea even behind it is keep in mind, his reality show is about taking this frankly crappy team that is in a rundown, the oldest stadium I think the oldest soccer state in the world that's basically run down, the town is on hard times. Is that what you're saying about Ottawa and your league? Like it doesn't Yeah, they're apply. forgetting they're forgetting that there has to be a story here in order for you to right. watch this. Right. And and truly, I mean, of all the teams, there's there's hockey fans all over the world. Are the Ottawa Senators really the team that all hockey fans want to tune into and suddenly go, Wow, I really now care about the Ottawa Senators? I the reason that you could care about Wrexham 
is because probably 98% of people in the world did not know any teams in this league. So yeah. it was easy to find one and jump on board. There was no, there was no cost. If you're a Leaf fan, you don't want to watch a show about the Senators. You hate the Senators. No. Yes. Uh, anyway, I, 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 so Ryan Reynolds being out, uh, I don't anticipate, I mean, honestly, could, do you really see a scenario in which the NHL gives a team to Snoop Dogg? Not that he's not, you know, Snoop Dogg and he's fun and he's all that kind of stuff, but is that really where you're wanting to go with your team? I don't know. Maybe, but. Well, they're always trying to expand and grow the audience. And as Snoop yes. Dogg said, I mean, you've got a person of a color, a person of color now owning a team. So, oh, well, that, you that, know. that's not what I'm talking about. I'm not talking about that at all. I'm talking about his great fondness for the reaper. So cannabis and cannabis and hockey don't mix. Is that what you're saying? They, they would be a very slow moving team if they all, uh, <laughs> if they're piping it into the room before the game. Hey, but the fighting would look a lot different. But see the weekend. Now the weekend here, this one makes more sense. You've got a Canadian guy, you've got an Ontario guy, you've got a guy who is a minority who also has a huge audience. The, the weekend to me is the one out of all of these that you look at and you go, now there's expanding your audience. There's doing the diversity thing. There's, there's a guy who is an interesting person for someone to bring on board as a part owner. All right. Let's ask you your prediction for tonight in the Leafs. I have to do that. You know that. Uh, so the Leafs are, <laughs> the Leafs are what? One and four at home, these playoffs. Oh man. Um, you would like to think, I would like to think, I think every person who watches hockey would like to think that after they played the way they did last game, which was exceptionally well, and now you've got some life and you're coming home that you would see the most invigorated, inspired, passionate, fast leaf team ever. Call me back, come onto the show five minutes into the game and we'll make a prediction and we'll see if it's the Leafs that come out like that, or if it's the Leafs that come out at home half the time and look like they've been in Snoop Dogg's dressing room before the game. <laughs> or maybe Willie Nelson's tour bus. You just don't know. That, yeah, that's true. All right. We'll Scott see. Radley show coming up after the six o'clock news. Read them in your Hamilton spectator. Thank you, Scott. As always have a great weekend. You too. It's supposed to be lovely. I know. Beautiful. It's beautiful out there today. Thanks, dude. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. Now, listen, Scott, I know there's a Leafs game tonight, and I'm both excited and also nervous. I'm hoping for a win, but... I think over six decades have told all of us to cross our fingers and pray to the hockey gods that they shall show mercy. 